Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel. And today I'll be talking with Dr. Rana Tarayeva and Dr. Rustam Aramboyev, we have recently co-edited a volume called Labor, Mobility, and Informal Practices in Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe, Power, Institutions, and Mobile Actors in Transnational Space. Rana Tarayeva is a senior scholar affiliated with the Institute for Social and Cultural Anthropology at the Ludwig Maximilian University uh, in Munich and is an associated senior researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halazala, Germany. Her first monograph on migration and identity was on migration and identity in Uzbekistan and was published in with Rudeledge in 2016. And she's currently finishing her second monograph, which is titled Migration and Islam in Russia. Dr. Rustem Urmboyev is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology of Law at Lund University. And he is also a senior researcher in Russian and Eurasian studies at the Alexandria Institute at the University of Helsinki. In addition to this book, he is currently co-writing a new book called The Political Economy of Non-Western Regimes, Migration and Legal Informality in Russia and Turkey, which is due to come out next year. Rana and Rusem, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thank you very much. So I'm excited to sit down and talk with you about this book today, which is actually a series with Ruledge. Uh, and, and published in, with, in partnership with the British Association for Slavic and East European Studies. Of course, the book itself deals with Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe, looks at issues including labor, mobility, and informal practices in all of these spaces. Um, to help contextualize this work, I was hoping you could share a little bit about how you came up with this project and how it relates to some of your previous and future research. Um, some listeners in particular might notice some similarities between this book and a previous book we discussed uh, with you, Rustem, um, but we'd like to hear a little bit more about your projects and your research kind of trajectory. So let's, let's start with Rustem. Uh, I think this, uh, this, uh, this book project, I see, in my view, this is a, a spontaneous process. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Rano, I think it was 2018, uh, Rano contacted me with a, a proposal to organize a workshop uh, on migration and informality in Central Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Uh, 
uh, and at that time uh, uh, um, it, it was uh, difficult to get funding for a workshop from German funding agencies. And then I proposed that uh, we, we can try to get funding from Swedish Riksbanken's UBLM's fund. And then this is how this uh, the idea of this book was born. And then uh, we applied for pr- uh, workshop funding and we got money. And then uh, after uh, some time, uh, I think it was uh, March 2018, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we organized first international workshop on migration and informality in, in Central Eastern Europe and Central Asia. This was the beginning of our, of our uh, uh, long journey. And then uh, we, uh, after uh, one year, again, we organized another workshop in Lund again with the financial support of Riksbank and Superlames Fund. And then uh, we again invited migration scholars, st- scholars studying uh, labor, mobility, and informality in, uh, in post-Soviet context in Eastern Europe, um, Central Europe. And this is how we built this uh, big team, uh, which you find in uh, in, in this edited volume, 12 authors. And so this is how the, we started the project. Uh, but Rano, I, I think you can complement more and tell the details about this. I think, thank you very much. Uh, I can, I think uh, I can tell you the prehistory. Uh, prehistory was that uh, Keas Schenk, she's also contributed. Uh, she invited me to a workshop, uh, which is called in uh, migration in Eurasia or something, Eurasia, Eurasian migra- migration, some, something like this in Astana. So it was a very uh, small workshop, like a, a round table discussion on the topic of migration in Eurasian space. So um, sitting there in this event, um, I was really, re- I had to reflect a lot on my past research, which has to do with migration, informal economies, we were discussing a lot of uh, other colleagues' uh, topics uh, on the similar issues. And while I was discussing there with the colleagues about my past research on migration and formal economies, I somehow started there to think about, but the link between, uh, um, we, we, we talk about migration all the time, but I started more to think about mobilities because I was... Uh, looking at mobile actors who are uh, cutting, uh, um, going beyond national boundaries, so transnational actors more specifically. Um, so I was thinking more about mobilities and migration, sitting in this migration workshop, and then informality. Uh, I, I, I um, participated in uh, very different projects on informality uh, until then, uh, 2000 until 2017 until I started my uh, research in Russia. So it came to my mind that uh, this link uh, between um, mobilities and informality somehow I didn't uh, much find in its systematic form in the literature. And that's how this idea came to my mind while sitting and discussing with the colleagues and then um, uh, Rustam uh, was really uh, kind to find the funding and then we had this event and as he said it became, it evolved, this idea took shapes and at the end it became um, this book so I think uh, that's a prehistory of the idea 
So it took, it took three years to get this yeah. out mm -hmm. with, uh, with work, two workshops in Lund uh, and a lot of co editing work and uh, processes with uh, getting a book contract. Uh, so this is, yeah, mm -hmm. I think yeah. it was a very exciting uh, uh, process. Uh, and I, I want to dive a little bit deeper because it, it's pretty interesting to hear that a lot of these these three main concepts that that kind of circulate in the book labor mobility and informality are kind of coming not just from your own um kind of research but actually from from a lot of conversations with a lot of different people in a lot of different places right like this is pretty interesting um and i think to some extent labor is pretty clear um that i mean we'll, we'll talk about this um we'll talk about this what you mean by labor, uh, why labor is important to study, um, but I think it's a clear choice. Um, I'm more interested right now in mobility, this uh, conversation that Rana was just uh, reflecting on, which is mobility versus migration. Um, and I'd like you guys to talk a little bit more about that, um, kind of why mobility, and then also what similarities do we kind of see in these mobility regimes? What are these mobility regimes as you call them? Um, in the Commonwealth of Independent States, the European Union, and the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, because this is kind of one of the threads that you try to unite these different regions. And we know that um, Rustem is actually working on a project where he also looks at these processes in Turkey. So I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about mobility versus migration and how, uh, what similarities we see across these different spaces. So I think Rano, Rano can comment on this. Yeah, Rana. Okay. Sure. Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, as I said, I already started uh, some preliminary uh, ideas that how I started to think about mobility. So uh, so I, I was doing uh, research on migration in, in uh, internal migration in Uzbekistan, and then I went to uh, Russia and did uh, my, uh, my research on migration, Central Asian migration to Russia. And that's uh, also how I started uh, writing about transnational actors and mobile entrepreneurs. So I published uh, several works on mobile entrepreneurs, and that's how I came to uh, understand the problem of how these mobilities challenge existing uh, uh, nation-state models, which we are used to so far. And also the, within this mig migration literature also, uh, the, the start of the discussion or analysis is about how the national state regulate, regulates, regulate uh, migration policies. And these are kind of a very much or largely uh, imprisoned within these nation state systems and legal systems, which are uh, uh, within uh, nation states. Yeah. And of course, uh, transnationalism literature is not new. I mean, Nina Glick-Schiller and others um, they they built uh, until now. It's a huge literature on transnationalism and how this uh, transnationalization of uh, networks work and how these national groups interact beyond uh, these borders. But this is also very much largely about engagement with the home country and and all these uh, nationality and identity questions, which are. Um, largely discussed within this literature. 
Um, but in my research, when I was uh, looking at the uh, economic activities, like when it had to do with uh, banking systems, money transfers, um, or, or other kinds of uh, channels which would actually need, uh, which would actually deal with the regulation itself, this is, this is still, this is, there is still a lot of literature on that, but it's, it was still kind of a, a something which was necessary to engage further in my eyes, because you have this kind of uh, state, uh, national nation state models, which do, which not always accommodate all these transnational economic activities, which I was uh, looking at um, until I came to the project, and um, that's why mobility. So mobility is much more open. I mean, mobility turn, we know it's also not new with Uri and others who are starting to uh, challenge all kinds of contacts uh, um, uh, in the area of mobility turn as, as it's discussed in the literature. Um, so mobility is, is a much more opening up uh, these rigid nation state uh, models which don't always accommodate this kind of very complex situations we are dealing with. If, if it's a transnational labor migration, if it's um, seasonal labor, if, if it's a, a mobile labor, if it's um, other kinds of activities of different kinds of entrepreneurship. So that's, um, that, that's why mobilities and migration. So, uh, I mean, of course, we... In the book, we have uh, different models and different examples of different kinds of migrations, but these all could kind of contribute to uh, understanding mobility more. And um, to the question of how it, how informality uh, comes into play is that when you start talking about uh, that the state, nation state models or legal systems which do not anymore accommodate all the economic activity which is happening on one place, but these uh, economic activities are, uh, are happening in different locales, then, of course, what is not accommodated within the legal system is then somehow happening or take place or accommodated within the, the informal spaces. Mm. Uh, here we talk about informal regulations, here we talk about informal economies, here we talk about um, informal practices of different kind. We, here we talk about different actors as well. Mm -hmm. So in other words, mobility uh, allows you to talk about informality as well, but um, essentially addresses that main problem, which is people are not just moving from one nation state to the other anymore, that it's a much more complex process and people are moving in different kinds of ways, right? Yes. That's why, I mean, that enables us to somehow to analyze this kind of very complex situation of mobility and, and all this uh, uh, labor mobility in, in our cases, of course. Uh, many cases are from labor, labor mobility examples. There are, of course, other practices which we included in the book. But this is how we could include very diverse examples uh, in order to look, in order to understand what what is the linking uh, part of informality and mobility in order to understand these two concepts together? Yeah, and I think we'll dive more into that once we get down to the um, uh, the sections on mobility and informality, because basically I want to structure the rest of our talk today 
about the different sections of the book, which are labor mobility and informality. And so this first section on, uh, let's start with this first section on labor, um, which deals with a range of topics. You have like an ethnographic study of tax, taxi drivers in Tashkent, uh, labor relations between Russian business and migrant workers, um, a study on deportation regimes in uh, contemporary Russia, which was co-authored by you, Rana, and also a chapter which deals with uh, informality with uh, within Romanian communities kind of working in, in the German uh, uh, construction and meat process, meat processing sectors. Um, and what unites these stories, which is interesting because, you know, we sit back and we think, what what do these stories all have in common, especially Romanians in Germany? Like, can, can we draw comparisons? But your answer is yes, we can. And what unites these stories is uncertainty, uh, legal uncertainty, uh, dealing with with uh, lack of documentation, weak rule of law um, from the state perspective, and, sh- and shadow economies. So my question for you is, how does this uncertainty link these various case studies, and what are some of the major differences between them? Um, this is the Central Asian Studies channel, so I'm particularly interested in comparing uh, kind of the Central Asian case, both in you know both in Central Asia and also Central Asians who are in Russia or elsewhere. Um, and kind of, kind of comparing them with this broader East East European or even European context. Um, yeah, let's let's start with that. So I'll, whoever uh, would I like can to I can start and then Rustam can continue. Um, I think uh, um, what I dealt in my research with uncertainty was uncertainty and trust was coming out as the central uh, themes. When you consider uh, people who leave their safe networks at home, um, they immediately face uncertainties um, in the context of, uh, um, with, even within their own countries, uh, when they start traveling, um, they are uncertain about um, what kind of documents they should carry, if they will be stopped, where shall they stay, where shall they leave, do they have enough money? Because, I mean, um, the, the, the mig- migration policies in no country in, in Central Asia or in Russia, taken, taking as an example, for example, these migrat- migratory pol- mig- migration policies are not in places so that in order to somehow uh, regulate any kind of mobility within the country or, or, or uh, incoming mobilities, for example. So, I mean, since these systems are not there and social welfare systems are not there, we we have to do a lot with uncertainty. And, um, I mean, informal arrangements is full of uncertainty because um, there is no security of any kind. So that produces uh, very uncertain decisions and um, uncertain strategies of all kinds. And I think... Um, it has a lot of implications also uh, for social relations and um, security questions, as I said. Sorry, uh, I have to come to the cable. Um, so, so these systems that we are dealing or well, these situations that we are dealing with is full of uncertainty. And in the situation of uncertainty, um, of course, as, as a resulting question which arises is trust. Can I trust someone? Can I trust this person or this other person to work with or who hires me or um, whom I can trust other things? Yeah, And these things should be arranged outside of those systems which are not there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, so in this case, um, Russia, which doesn't have a lot of these kind of, I mean, we've talked about this before, Rusnam, in your previous interview, but Russia, which doesn't have a lot of these, as you just said, Rana, uh, these kind of um, systems for managing migration and, and mobility. Um, I mean, in some way, this is how lo low-level corruption operates, and we, we, we know about that. Um, does this make Russia unique in some way, or do we see this in other places in Eastern Europe as well? Can I comment on this? Yeah, please. I think uh, you raised very important question. You know, uh, uh, this uh, this part of this section of the book, labor, deals with different social legal context. We have uh, uh, Uzbek context uh, with a taxi driver, uh, informal taxi drivers. Then we have Romanian and German context covered there through the case study of Romanian workers posted uh, in, in Germany, uh, German construction sector, and we have also Russian labor market with ambiguous legal system. And uh, of course, the, the idea of, you know, bringing together these three different uh, uh, chapters covering uh, uh, different social legal context is to show that examples that we show uh, in relation to uncertainty, precarious labor and ambiguous legal system is not just unique to Russian case, but similar examples, you know, can be found in different socio-legal contexts. So, so we wanted to show that uh, this comparative context also that uh, uh, the examples, you know, provided in this book is much broader than the post-Soviet case, but it can be found in, uh, in, uh, in different mobility regimes if we connect to introduction where we have commonwealth of independent states, uh, Eurasian Economic Union, and Euro European Union, and then these are different mobility regimes, but this precarious labor and then ambiguous legal system and uncertainty creates different, you know, similar responses uh, which migrants uh, invent in order to uh, migrants and as actors involved in the migration industry invent to cope with uncertainties. And then informality, is, you see, it's a part of, uh, you know, coping strategies in, in these four different uh, key, uh, chapters. Mm -hmm. And so this is a story, yeah, mm -hmm. way, way beyond the post-communist yeah, yeah. or post-Soviet mm -hmm. world, but actually mm -hmm. this is um, mm -hmm. something that globally uh, we, we see throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. The, otherwise, informality is usually associated with global south or with the countries of post-Soviet space, but we see that... Uh, uh, it's a broader concept and it can be found also in the context of global north where through the example of, for example, Romanian workers, you know, using inf different informal tactics, mechanisms you know, to adapt to the labor market in Germany, for example. Great. Thank you. Um, for, for the next, I, I would like to uh, switch over to mobility, which I think is will be one of the most interesting sections of our interview, because I can tell this is what really stands behind the book in some ways. Um, so this middle section, uh, which I think is also about four, four chapters, um, deals with mobility and it looks at how different actors 
and their mobility blurs boundaries. And this is something you talked about in the introduction, uh, including legal, informal, physical, geographic, digital, and real uh, boundaries. So you have, again, here four studies. They deal with um, things like Uzbek migrant workers in Russia. So that's Rusev's chapter, uh, a chapter on Central Asian female migrants in Russia, a chapter which looks at the development of, of a healing practices industry, looking at things like writing amulets, uh, cupping therapy, and other uh, sorts of, sort of folk medicine, we might call it, and also a chapter on road regime road regimes, which looks at how local and mobile people in, in a sub suburban Western Poland adapt, change, and maintain informal or semi-legal economic strategies. So my first question, what do you mean by um, mobility blurs boundaries? How do we make sense of this, uh, this claim? May I start, Rano? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure, I can continue then. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, the, the idea behind this, in my view, is that uh, mobility blurs the boundaries uh, in the sense that uh, uh, boundaries uh, uh, cannot be any more uh, understood in relation to physical boundaries. But the, due to the mobile livelihoods that uh, many actors in uh, different chapters you know, uh, pursue in their everyday life, uh, uh, now... Uh, uh, mobility also operates uh, digitally through smartphones and social media. And this is what we want to show through the case of smartphones. And then um, not only the human, you know, human, you know, not only the people are um, um, involved in mobility. In, in these three, in these four different chapters, we also show that uh, social norms, traditions, and healing practices also travel with migrants to their uh, host countries. And this, you know, healing practices, social norms, and informal social control mechanisms, which, uh, which operate through, uh, through smartphones and through the digital, you know, boundaries, uh, they shape the uh, livelihood strategies of uh, mobile actors in both home and, home and host, host countries. So this is, I think, this is uh, central, in, I think, in my view, point that we want to show that mobility is both uh, physical, uh, uh, encompasses both the physical and digital boundaries. Rano, maybe you can... Yes, uh, I can add to that or, or complement to that, that, uh, I mean, uh, understanding of boundaries is very wide uh, in the literature, of course, but uh, when we talk about blurring boundaries of any kind, if we talk about formality or informality, like in this kind of binary visions of where the boundaries actually uh, make sense or, or, or appear to be uh, relevant, uh, so then blurring is like, um, it's kind of challenging those boundaries of different kinds of definitions. Um, what is formal actor and what is informal actor? Is the state actor becoming informal actor? Is that possible? Because I mean, here is already the blurring of between formality and informality is is there. So when we talk about blurring, boundaries are about um, challenging the the challenging this kind of divisions, challenging this kind of binary visions, challenging this kind of uh, rigid understanding of anything. If we talk about in the context of mobility, for example, then we talk about changing systems. So, I mean, uh, things like, um, 
if we say, for example, state legal system, which is relevant for uh, the, the national boundaries of uh, Russia, do not make sense anymore because uh, the activity is taking place in different countries and has to do with different uh, legal systems. If it's Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Russia, then we are dealing with different kinds of legal systems. And then you have then informal banking, for example, and very different actors. So all kinds of uh, boundaries are getting blurred. And then I would like to come back to uh, our uh, key, uh, one of the important concepts, I think, uh, mobility regimes, um, is that what we mean by mobility regimes is a regime is uh, going back to Foucault is, uh, is something which is regulating, which has some, some regulation, uh, regulating potential. So we talk about mobility regimes in very different contexts. It can include uh, all kinds of practices, institutions and actors. Um, just take visa regulations or union regulations. If you talk about um, post-Soviet countries, for example, they have a very different kind of trade regulations and other visa regulations and internal regulations for, for, for example, labor mobility, for example, or refugee politics. If you want to take in a European Union, there you have a very uh, formal and informal uh, agreements between very different countries, which uh, is included in refugee politics, for example. So this is a very wide range of uh, practices, institutions and actors which we would like. We, we cannot, of course, show all of the examples which exist, uh, which could be included in the, what we call mobility regimes, but we, we, we show some. Well, and I, I wanted to ask a little bit further about what you were just talking about, because I think we're used to thinking about kind of institutional and legal constraints, right? Like the state, we're used to, we're used to a state perspective, especially when we're talking about migrant workers. Um, but I'm curious, because we're talking about how these new boundaries are being formed, mobility, kind of the way that mobility operates outside of the national state kind of context. So how does... What, what kind of um, constraints do we see coming from transnational institutions, even if they're informal institutions or digital? You know, I guess the fact that we're using or the, that that the people we're talking about are using kind of digital networks to communicate. What, what are there any kind of constraints that this imposes on mobilities or does this what impact does this have on those mobilities? Um, maybe not just from a productive standpoint, but but. Is there a limiting aspect to this as well? Rustam, do you want to say something or shall I just briefly start? Well, you can start and I can add. Okay. Um, the co I mean, uh, we, we said that uh, the banking system is not relevant. We said that the state legal systems are not always relevant, but they are there, you know, and all this re uh, uh, regulation of visa regulations are there, uh, propiska regulations are there, deportation regimes are there. Uh, border regulations are there. And, I mean, the actors uh, become more and more innovative to avoid those constraints, but these are there. And um, these are also part of those mobility regimes uh, which not only enable, but also constrain. Yes, and this... Uh, this uh... Uh, if you talk about uh, uh, digital boundaries, I think we have two case studies where one in, in one case we see that uh, existence of uh, digital uh, technologies uh, empower migrants in the sense that they are able to enforce uh, contracts in uh, Moscow's uh, shadow economy. 
but, uh, but in the case of female migrants uh, who work in different sectors of the Russian labor market, uh, digital technologies uh, have a disempowering dis effect in the sense that through digital technologies, uh, 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 gender uh, gender uh, inequality and hierarchies that you observe in Uzbek society are uh, reproduced in a Russian labor market and they limit the uh, life chances and possibilities of female migrants. So we see that these digital technologies not only serving uh, uh, for uh, facilitating migrants, but they have also um, uh, uh, negative consequences for the livelihoods of migrants in terms of imposing informal forms of social control in their daily lives. And this this is what we wanted to show, this dynamics through not only the physical boundaries, but these digital technologies shaping the livelihoods of mobile workers uh, in different contexts. No, and I think that's a really good example of, of how, okay, the physical boundary it still matters, but it maybe starts to matter a little bit less when you, you see that these communities can still be connected through this digital space. So that's a really great example. Thank you. Um, yeah, let's, I, if, if you're not opposed, we can maybe talk a little bit about informality, but I think there will be some overlap between these two topics, uh, mobility and informality. Um, so yeah, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but uh, to reiterate informality um, we're kind of talking about informality as a state both as a state practice dealing with mobility but also as, as a way that um, mobile actors uh, react to the nation state um, and, and these legal kind of constraints so this in, this section includes a chapter where you look at uh, informal and formal practices um, both both as both part of a functioning state by exploring, things like migration quotas and deportation. Uh, another chapter, you this was actually really interesting. You look at the Arctic route uh, of Moscow through northern Russia, uh, which was a major transit channel during uh, through which migrants from Asia, Africa, and the Med Middle East traveled to the EU via Finland and Norway during the um, big, big migration, you know, refugee uh, migrations um, in like the last decade. And then... You have another chapter which takes us to Kazakhstan. Uh, again, this is really interesting to see how things are developing in Central Asia, but you're looking at practices of informal healthcare and how these groups who are undocumented um, kind of, uh, basically the state's coming in and trying to stop this practice of providing free healthcare for those people without documents, right? And to see how uh, the reverse, again, uh, the digitization of, of these technologies actually works for the state, but against certain groups, right? And then you also have this chapter um, on, uh, oh yeah, dual citizenship in, in Georgia and Azerbaijan with these Mesquitean Turks. Um, it specifically looks at Georgia in 2007 when there's this legal attempt to return them uh, to Turkey. And then there's this round of new citizenship laws, but basically you see increasing bureaucratic hurdles for uh, this minority group. Um, and, and they have to develop their own kind of informal practices and transnational lifestyles uh, to kind of operate outside of the nation state's sort of legal boundaries. 
So this is kind of a summary of each of these cases, but I'm curious uh, to hear from you how informality operates at the state level in these various cases and how we can kind of connect this with the broader space that we're talking about in the book, um, specifically about the state acting informally. I think I can start uh, since I have a chapter uh, together with uh, Isatamon. Um, and so on deportation regimes, there clearly you can see how how state uses the legal tools uh, to in, to um, enforce informal practices of deportation. So um, in our chapter, we deal with uh, uh, with the deportation cases that Izat uh, was defending as an, a lawyer, and on the court proceedings where I also participated. Um, so there you can see there is uh, these new regulations which uh, really, I mean, there, there are, I mean, uh, the, the legal analysis made by is that he's a lawyer, uh, where he shows some contradictions within the uh, 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 laws, within the, within the Russian law system. And beyond that, the practice itself, like, uh, uh, fining the people, entering the people's uh, administrative punishments into the system and how the system works on the level of deportation within the deportation system, how the court operates, how the application works, and then how the actual deportation happens. This, this has to do with uh, several uh, laws that we are citing in the chapter, for example, which contradict anyway, uh, to, also uh, content-wise, they contradict uh, to other laws that exist um, in the Russian legal system. But then if you analyze all the practices around, within, and all the documentation and, and, and the actual deportation, so you see a, a lot of uh, illegal uh, practices which are performed by state uh, state actors, uh, which doesn't doesn't fit to any kind of regulations of, for example, appeal system, for example, which is ignored, uh, the length of uh, uh, applications and 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 until actual deportation, for example, which are also regulated within the same laws, doesn't make any sense if you analyze how the deportation is actually conducted. So this is a very clear example how uh, state actors act illegally against uh, their own laws. So, I mean, um, these are, I think, the best example to, to show this. I actually have some follow-up questions because I'm, this is a really, personally, a really interesting topic. And um, so two things came to mind. One is, um, you know, we're talking about the Russian state, but you do occasionally see that Russian states and, and Central Asian states are actually working together um, to kind of enforce this. So how does that work? And second, um, obviously it's very difficult to avoid the deportation regime if once, it, once they have your, their kind of eyes set on you, right? Um, what, from your experience, what strategies um, can or do mobile people um, develop in, in response to these kinds of uh, deportation? Um, I think Rustam has, I think Rustam has very nice examples for that. So. Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, of course, I, think, uh, I also uh, argue in, in my book, in Migration and Hybrid Political Regimes, that uh, 
On the one hand, the uh, legal system is very restrictive and uh, uh, if you, from a legal centralistic perspective, it gives ideas that migrants are passive actors and without any agency. But on the other hand, the same legal system with big rule of law and corruption uh, allows migrants to invent different informal strategies to navigate the legal restrictions in the sense that this, this is a system that with both car- uh, with carrots and sticks, you know. If, uh, so this is a contradiction, more or less a paradox of the Russian legal system that and uh, in in our book, uh, in in this edited volume, we have also interesting examples from Keris Shank. Uh, she she has a chapter in the last section in informality where she shows the, how the informal practices of the Russian state actors uh, produces informal migration governance system, where uh, you know different interest, interests are uh, reconciled uh, first uh, by. Uh, by informal practices, Russian uh, state officials are creating uh, scarce labor force, uh, a scarce formal labor force, uh, which which is submissive and uh, legally unprotected. Uh, and and also at the same time, this is also a signal to the society, to the xenophobic groups in the society that Russian state is doing, and there is a strict uh, legal system which is. Uh, controlling migrants and deporting them. So then these xenophobic tendencies are satisfied. On the other, uh, other hand, the same system uh, allows migrants uh, to navigate the system. And, and so we have different you know, actors involved benefiting from this informal governance uh, system, which you can observe. And then chapter by Yoni uh, Viktunen and Mina Piponen, I think this is a very good example uh, again, that uh, informal practice of, of Russian state officials, uh, you know, to some extent facilitated the production of Arct- Arctic road because Russian state officials were indirectly involved uh, in the emergence of this new migration uh, refugee road to, to European Union through Finnish and Norwegian borders. So we have these different, you know, chapters, and then they show that uh, the more you re- regulate, the more you incentive you create for uh, informality. So this, uh, of course, this also connects us to the global debates, global uh, debates in migration studies where uh, De Genova argues that uh, talks about the legal production of migrant illegality. So this example shows that Russian case is not unique, but uh, but it's uh, part of this global tendencies of this informalization of labor uh, and mobility uh, due to strict uh, legal uh, legal restri- restrictions and regulations and could you talk a little bit more about informal pra- inf- informal state practices outside of the russian context because i know you just mentioned this this um uh, kind of refugee movement facilitated mm. by uh, mm. russian state actors um you know mm. uh, through finland and norway but um, can, can you provide some examples of, of kind of informal practices by state actors and not in the Russian Federation context, but, but outside of that? Because, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about how this Russian case kind of fits into this global context, like you just said. Yeah, and uh, in, from my experience, uh, you know, while doing fieldwork in Istanbul, in Turkey, uh, I see similar ten- tendencies where, 
uh, uh, um, these legal restrictions, uh, regulations, which is, uh, uh, which is not possible for migrants to observe, uh, creates uh, you know, new avenues of informality. And also, this is not just a Russian or Turkish case, but we can also see similar examples in Western migration regimes. Like, you know, there are studies dealing with uh, uh, informal document industry in in United Kingdom. Uh, we also see similar tendencies in relation to migrants' experiences in United States. We have studies from Susan Cotin and Cecilia Menchivar uh, and many others, you know, talking about the you know, emergence of informal strategies. So this is uh, more or less, in my view, uh, it's a global tendency that uh, Rano, would you like to add more in this respect? I mean, uh, that's also, I mean, since we are talking about Central Asia here, uh, so, I mean, in Central Asia is also, uh, mm. I mean, Kupatatsa's work on some, uh, criminal states, uh, criminal, uh, criminalized post-Soviet state, he also talks about Central Asian states and Russian state and Caucasus, examples from Ukraine and Belarus. So, I mean, uh, he has several books on, on, on criminal states. So, I mean, this literature is, I mean, is there. Great, thank you. Yeah, and also, if we add more, uh, you know, the reason we bring this informality to, 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 to in this edited volume is to show the parallels and the similar developments in different socio-legal contexts. Uh, and uh, I think uh, also uh, by... Uh, by focusing on the case of uh, Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe, we we wanted to sh to show that uh, this uh, this regions uh, should not be seen as a kind of anomalies or ex uh, exa uh, examples of uh, mm. of uh, of or islands of informality, but yeah. this is more a gro global tendency. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. and I think I, I think agree that fully with that comes comes through really well, and and hopefully that's what I, we were mm -hmm. highlighting in the interview. Um, great, I think we are nearing uh, the end of the interview, so I I wanted to kind of give you the opportunity, um, like for listeners, what what are the big takeaways that you want them, you know, reflecting on the book, but also reflecting on your kind of broader research. What do they need to know about states, my mobility? informality, um, you know, in, in the Russian and, and kind of Central Asian context. And I know we just talked about this mm -hmm. a little bit, but uh, a last opportunity uh, to reach the listeners. If I say, if I can start, uh, in my view, one of the main takeaways uh, through these different case studies chapters is that uh, when we analyze, review the mainstream uh, migration studies literature, especially dealing with uh, mobility regimes and legal regulations. They are very much obsessed with uh, migrants' uh, legal status and the role of the law. And then there is a kind of legal centralistic approach that is a tendency uh, to focus on the nation-state legal system as a, a factor determining the life chances and trajectories of migrants. But uh, uh, the idea is that uh, I am also trying to show in my forthcoming book about migration in Russia and Turkey that uh, we need to uh, broaden our lens 
uh, and try to uh, incorporate in, informality, these informal practices uh, that migrants uh, invent uh, in uh, in their daily life as a as a, a, a alternative adaptation strategy uh, in uh, uncertain and precarious migration uh, situations. You know conditions. And that's why I think that's something that, as a legal sociologist, I would argue for the necessity to to, grow, to include uh, informal avenues of adaptation. As an anthropologist, I think I have to say that. Um, as an anthropologist, I really um, appreciate the anthropological literature on uh, mobility studies, anthropological literature on uh, migration in general or transnational migration. Uh, so I think um, in, informal uh, study of informality, I think uh, anthropologists uh, contributed uh, uh, enough uh, enough uh, examples into this literature, and I think our book uh, really complements this kind of anthropological approaches to uh, to studies of informality and mobilities, where we would we are kind of giving a more perspectives of act from actor oriented perspectives then um, as uh, Rustam said uh, rightly that it's not that the uh, migrants are passive receivers of all these migration policies but they also have some agency and innovate and contribute to this kind of informal informal practices which are very important to understand you know, in order to understand these very complex processes I guess. Great thank you both uh, Ron and Rustam. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing um, some insights onto your uh, really great edited volume. Uh, for the listeners, that the, the title of that volume, again, was Labor Mobility and Informal Practices in Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe, Power, Institutions, and Mobile Actors in Transnational Space, published this year, 2021, uh, with Rue. Uh, thanks again for coming to the show, Rana and Rustam. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us.